Daniel 8, it's 1 through 14. Daniel's vision of the ram and the goat. In the third year of the reign of King Belteshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other. And the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him, and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great. But when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns towards the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it all, given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that make desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For two thousand three hundred evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. This is the word of the Lord. All right, well, we are working our way through a series in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. And if you're just joining us in this series, you're jumping in at at an interesting point. Let's say that. Daniel is a field manual for people trying to trust God and follow his ways in a world where it's not always easy to do that. Um, The first six chapters of Daniel tell the story of God's people living in exile in this city of Babylon that they've been taken to. It's a foreign place. It's a pluralistic place. It's a secular place. It can be a hostile place to their faith. It's a place very much like the place we are trying to live out our faith and follow Jesus in our world today. Yet God empowers them to follow him with obedience and trust. But even more than that, God calls them to be a blessing to those around them, to pray for the place he sent them, to invest in its good, um, to work for its good. So these stories are, are a guide for all the followers of Jesus living today in our home away from home, as well. But the second half of Daniel, chapter 7 through 12, switch from these historical accounts on the ground stories of faith to a new genre of literature called apocalyptic literature, okay? And you just heard 14 verses of apocalyptic literature. And we can all admit, we can, this is a safe place, we can all say this together, things are getting weird, okay? 
We can say that. Things are getting weird. Rams and goats with an unnatural number of horns are battling it out, and we're all sitting here 2,500 years after this was written saying, what in the world does this have to do with me trying to follow Jesus here in the Roaring Fork Valley or wherever else it is that we live? But before giving up on this kind of stuff, before skipping over these passages, let's just keep a couple things in mind. First, while this way of writing is strange to ours, our ears today, it was less strange to the readers who read it at first. The apocalyptic thing, the genre, was actually a pretty common uh, way of writing at this time. And they had um, a certain set of stock images, so to speak, that, that they automatically understood that we don't always automatically understand. Now, we actually have these sorts of stock images in our world today, too. So, um, for example, if you were to flip on the news and the first thing you hear is, the White House said today, dot, 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 you know, we automatically understand, well, there's not a building that is white with vocal cords that is literally speaking to us, right? But we under, that's a stock image for the power of the presidency, an announcement from that office and that authority. And so we import that meaning into it right away. Well, the ancient readers did the same. They, they could import meaning into some of these images that we need a little help catching up on. So, for example, the image of the horn almost always represented military power, national military power. We need to learn that, but they wouldn't have given that a second thought. So lots of this would have been more accessible, more familiar to the original readers than it is to us, but it still doesn't mean it was easy. At the end of this chapter, I love the, the last line of Daniel 8, It reads this way, I, Daniel, was overcome. I lay sick for some days after this vision. Then I arose and I went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and I did not understand it, okay? So as we approach these strange scenes in the Bible, on on the one hand, we need to enter into them trusting that they're understandable, that they're relevant to our lives today. We trust all scripture is God-breathed and profitable for our faith. But on the other hand, we need to do this with a little bit of humility, right? And a little bit of grace to those who maybe read these parts of the Bible different than us because um, we're imperfect readers. We're separated from this by a lot of time, and it was written in a very different culture. But I think that if we can camp out between those those two um, boundaries, there's some great stuff for us, not only in Daniel 8, but in the rest of this apocalyptic vision that we're going to get to um, in the rest of Daniel. So here's the plan for this morning. I want us to walk through sort of the details of this vision, kind of get into the weeds of it a little bit, show you guys what the best scholars out there think it means, and then I want to zoom back out and consider the bigger picture. Is this relevant? Is there actually a gift here for us today to receive that can help us trust Jesus as we walk through the world? if we have the hearts and the eyes to see it. So that's the plan. We just read the vision that God gave Daniel about a showdown between a ram and a goat with various numbers of horns on each. What could this mean? All right, well, back in February of this year, before the Super Bowl, um, I think someone actually stumbled on one of the best interpretations of this vision that I have heard yet. Um, They claimed that Daniel 8 had actually predicted the winner of Super Bowl 53, okay? Now, hear me out, though. 2,500 years before the NFL was invented. Um, 
the Rams, of course, were playing the Patriots. We know that. And the quarterback of the Patriots, Tom Brady, is universally considered the greatest of all time, also known as the GOAT, right? So at the end of the day, it was the Rams versus the GOAT. And the GOAT did destroy the Rams by the end of the afternoon. They may be onto something. That's, there have been a wide range. There have been a wide range of interpretations out there. But we're not left on our own here. God sends Daniel and us an interpreter to help us understand. So let me pick up here in verse 18 um, where uh, some, uh, God sends someone to help Daniel understand this vision. When he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and made me stand up. He said, behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia, and the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king, and as for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, Four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. What God shows Daniel in this chapter is a preview of upcoming historical political events. It's a roadmap of the coming political and military shifts over the next three or four hundred years. See, the ram represents the Persian Empire, the world's reigning superpower in Daniel's day. The Persians reigned from roughly 538 to 330 BC. It was expansive, spanning from India to Greece. But like all nations, this one would not last. Their empire wouldn't last. And the goat who defeats this Persian empire, we're told, is the Greek empire. Now, of course, this is exactly what happened in history. Um, the, The single horn is its first king. We know that now is Alexander the Great. In just 12 years, Alexander the Great, or as I call him, Alexander the Goat, yeah? No, that was so bad. I apologize to everybody. Um, Alexander the Great systematically took over the Persian Empire. It was actually one of the greatest military campaigns in the history of the world. Um, But then God tells Daniel in his vision that this first horn, or king, will be replaced by four others. And lo and behold, this is exactly what pans out in history. In June of 323 BC, Alexander the Great died, likely assassinated, actually while in Babylon, while in the very city that Daniel was in, um, at the age of 33, and his sweeping territory was taken over by his four top generals, Seleucus, Antigonus, Ptolemy, and Attalus. This four-part division of the Greek Empire remained the norm for the next 300 years until the Romans took over in 30 BC. But as important as Alexander the Great was in history, and again, hang with me for just like two more minutes on the history stuff in the weeds, then we're going to zoom out and say, so what, okay? But I think this is kind of cool. This is like Bible nerd kind of stuff. Um, As important as Alexander the Great was in history, this vision from God actually gives more airtime to one of the obscure kings that takes over one-fourth of his territory, the Seleucian kingdom, down the line, who reigned from 175 to 164 BC. His name was Antichus Epiphanes. So in verses, picking up in verse 23, let me read to you the rest of this chapter um, that tells us about this character. And the latter end of their kingdom, later on, um, down the road in the Greek Empire, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. 
and he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men. And the people who are the saints, by his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. Um, history actually tells us that this man, Antichus Epiphanes, was a tyrant in all the ways the Bible describes. He um, persecuted God's people to, um, in an extreme way. The Israelites even nicknamed him Antichus the Madman. In 168 BC, um, he tried to take over Egypt. It didn't work. And he vented his anger on the Jewish people by sending his troops into the temple on a day of worship and slaughtering everyone who was there. He banned religious practice, circumcision, um, the, the uh, sacrifices that they did. He basically outlawed the Jewish religion. And then he set up a statue of Zeus, this Roman god, this Greek god, um, in place of the altar in their temple. And he slaughtered a pig right there on the floor of the temple to desecrate, to make it unclean forever for the Jewish people. Um, he was vicious. He was cruel. He rose up, we even read, against the prince of, P, uh, of princes himself. In fact, it's interesting, the only time Daniel's name is actually even mentioned in the New Testament is um, when Jesus warns his disciple about this exact event. He says, when you see the abomination of desolation, which is a reference to this event in the temple, spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. You see, Antichus Epiphanes became a stand-in, another one of those stock images for all that was against God's good reign in the world. And Jesus warns his followers, it's going to happen again, and it's going to happen again. There will always be people who push against God's reign in the world. In Daniel 8, God gives his people this strange collection of imagery that lays out a roadmap for the next 500 years of political history, and that's it. That's the chapter. That's what it's about, okay? That's what this vision means. So now the question is, what in the world could this vision mean for us, okay? I mean, what, as we zoom out from the details and the trees and we try to take in the bigger forest, the bigger meaning, is there anything here for us? Or all this stuff that was future history back then is now ancient history for us. I mean, is it all just in the past and we can move on. Are there any practical, relevant, spiritually nourishing gifts for us to unwrap from this chapter? I actually think there are many, okay? There are many. Um, We could, for example, talk about the fact that God has a particular eye in this world for the small. Jesus didn't say it this way, but Daniel 8 is a story about a beatitude, we could say. Blessed are the small. I mean, Alexander the Great was a far more important uh, figure politically in history, but God spends most of his airtime talking about the one who is going to um, cause the most harm and the most fear for his people, his children. God has an eye for those who are hurting, an eye for the weak, an eye for the marginalized, an eye for the small. He watches over all of us, whether we're world changers or small ones. We could also talk about the key to endurance through difficulty, the key to persevering in faith that God reveals for us here, that he's present with us, that he he is never surprised, 
that he knows the future, that he has a plan, and no matter what comes down the road for us, he already knows what's going on. And we can rest in his kingly good reign. But I think in the time that we have left, what I want to do is zero in on on just one key thing, one foundational and joyful gift that God offers you and me in this passage. And in many ways, it's the gift that includes all the gifts of the gospel in the entire Bible. It's this, that God's revelation to us in his word, what he communicates to his people through the Bible is always, always right. And it's always, always good. We haven't really touched on this yet in our series, but there's actually a pretty large debate about the book of Daniel, specifically centered around when it was written, okay? And you can imagine why. The best manuscript evidence, and and even the the book itself claims that Daniel wrote it, that Daniel wrote it in the 6th century BC, maybe 550 or something like that. But many modern biblical scholars say there's no way it could have been written that early. It must have been written at least 400 years after that. Um, Because, around 150 BC, because the history it describes between 500 and 150, the history that we just walked through, is so accurate and it's so precise and it's so dead on, I mean, down to the number of generals that are going to take over after Alexander the Great dies, um, that it has to be written after all of this if you're going to get all of those facts right. You see, the debate about when the book of Daniel was written is not actually a debate about the best historical evidence and the manuscript dating. All of that points to a really early 6th century date. The debate is about what the Bible is. What's the Bible? Because if you believe the Bible is God's very words, the words from heaven, and you believe that God really is all-knowing and all-powerful and the sovereign king of creation as he claims to be, then it shouldn't be surprising that every once in a while he'd kind of tip off his children. You know, Here's what's coming down the pipe, guys. It wouldn't surprise us at all. In fact, we might even expect that sort of thing to happen more in the Bible if the Bible is truly God's word. But if you don't believe it's God's very word and that he's the God of history as well as the, as well as the God of your life, then, of course, that sort of prophecy and accuracy is impossible. So one of the key questions Daniel 8 asks of you and me is, what do you believe the Bible is? What sort of book, what sort of voice is this in your life? Do you believe it can always be trusted every single time? That everything it says is right and good and full of life? Whether you understand it or not at first, whether you like it at first, um, whether or not you agree with everything it says at first, or whether you need to sit in the ambiguity of it for a while before the deep sense of it all starts to emerge over months and years and decades of time, is God's word always reliable and true? Is it, is it the voice that sets due north for your journey through life? Even the tough parts, even the countercultural parts, the parts that ask us, to do hard things for God's kingdom because that really is the path to life and joy at the end of the day. You know, the longest single chapter in the Bible is actually a love poem about the Bible itself. Do you know that? Psalm 119. Um, Listen to how the psalmist sings about God's word and ask yourself, is this the song of your heart about God's word or do you want it to be? Do you want your heart to grow to sing this sort of song 
about the Bible. Listen to this, verse 18. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Verse 25, give me life according to your word. 28, my soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. 103, how sweet are your words to my taste. 114, you are my hiding place and my shield. I hope in your word alone. 129, your testimonies are wonderful. My soul keeps them. The unfolding of your word gives light. Your your promise is well tried. It's been tested and your servant loves it. My soul keeps your testimonies. I love them exceedingly. I mean, this is, a, this is a love poem to a book, isn't it? Verse 161, my heart stands in awe of your words. Have you ever stood back and just stood in awe of what God gave us in the Bible? The vast sweeping story of history, the gifts that are there, the, the riches of heaven poured out for us. I read a book to my kids a couple years ago about Helen Keller. And she was the woman who contracted an illness before she was two years old that rendered her both um, deaf and blind. However, she not only learned to speak despite both of those disabilities, she actually went on to be the first person with, uh, first um, deaf blind person to earn a bachelor's degree, became a famous author, activist, and lecturer, okay? She made her money speaking, um, having learned to speak after she was both deaf and blind. And what stood out to me from her story was how she learned how to speak. I mean, if you can't hear words and you can't even see someone, um, you know, you can't even see someone mouthing words, how do you learn what the sounds sound like? Well, what she would do is she would literally stick her hands into other people's mouths while they talked, and she would feel what it felt like for them to speak, And then she would do the same thing to her own mouth. And she learned the mechanics of speaking by sticking her hands into someone else's mouth. Scripture is something very close to that for us. We're born into this world spiritually deaf, spiritually blind, spiritually mute. Um, But God opens his mouth and he lets us get in there, right? He lets us kind of stick our hands in there and learn what it's like to, to, to feel the language of God. We get to feel and experience the voice of God. And over time, he trains us in his language, in his character, and his love for the world. It's like sticking your hands in God's mouth when you open up your Bible. And once you realize the gifts that God has given us in this book, the, the truthfulness of it, the, the reliability, the lifeline it provides for us spiritually wandering people, you begin to see why the psalmist writes a love poem to a book. There's this great little exchange in John 6 between Jesus and his disciples after he has um, got done teaching on some hard topics, some offensive topics. And some of his followers chime in and they say, "Uh, Jesus, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Jesus responds, it's the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. And then after this, many of his, it says many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. They didn't want that path to life. It was too hard, too confusing. So Jesus said in verse 12 to his disciples, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom should we go? You have the words of eternal life. Do you see what just happened there? In that exchange, 
like, like those who want to discount the Bible because they don't believe it could actually be written by a God who reigns over human history and might actually know something about the future, we, as well, are tempted to turn from God's word when it gets hard, when it gets offensive, when it gets confusing, or when it gets challenging. But those who stick with Jesus for the long haul are the same ones who continue to fight to believe that his words are always true and always good. And we learn to say with Peter, well, I mean, where else would we go? Like, what other voice would we listen to? But that's a lifelong struggle for us, isn't it? All of us. I mean, you know this just like me. There are so many voices out there in the world vying for our attention, pulling, pulling on our ears, saying, here's the way to life. Here's the way to joy. Here's the way to health. Here's the way to fulfillment. And if we don't decide which voice we're going to follow at the end of the day, we're just going to be confused and distracted all the time. Trusting the voice of God in his word above all the other voices, it's not easy And it's not always obvious at first. For example, in my own life, when the voice in my own heart whispers, and maybe some of you have heard this voice in your own heart as well, but when the voice in my own heart whispers, you must perform at a certain level of competence uh, to be liked and valued and loved. Your work output is the measure of your life. Your reputation among other people is how meaning in your life is measured. Well, God's word which is even more certain than these own intuitions coming out of my heart, says, no, no, you're loved because I love you, right? And you, you, you're uh, not because that you perform perfectly for me. It's while you are yet a sinner that Christ died for you. Your performance has nothing to do with my love for you. And in fact, it says my power is even made perfect in your weaknesses, Luke, not in your strength, right? And so now I have two voices in my heart and in my mind, and I've got to decide which voice to follow. This isn't something we decide once. This is something we decide over and over again. Or here's another one. When, when there's no way that we can see any logical reason to give away the first significant portion of our income every month to God's kingdom, and then to continue to give on top of that in generous ways, because that financial strategy doesn't make much sense at first glance, but then God drops lines like, it's better to give than to receive. Really? Or you will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous to others in every way. We, and then now we have to decide which voice gets the last word in our lives. And it turns out, despite first appearances, that when God commands generosity for his people, he's actually protecting us and he's loving us. He's protecting us from greed and selfishness and materialism. He's growing in us a heart that trusts him with our money, and then from that, we get to trust him with more and more of our lives. And then he goes and he sends timely reminders, like that elderly couple who get to the very end of their lives and are not as materially wealthy as they would have been otherwise, but they can honestly describe themselves without irony and with joy in their eyes as the richest people they know. Because God has uh, grown in their hearts a love for him and a trust for him. And those moments come along to remind us that God's word is always good. It is always true, and it's always right. J.I. Packer um, put it this way. God does not profess to answer in scripture 
all of the questions that we, in our boundless curiosity, would like to ask about it. He tells us merely as much as he sees that we need to know as a basis for our life and faith. He leaves unsolved some of the problems raised by what he tells us in order to teach us humble trust in his truthfulness. So the question, therefore, we must ask ourselves when faced with these puzzles is not, is it reasonable to imagine that this is so? But is it reasonable to accept God's assurance that this is so? Do you see the difference? Not, can I figure it out logically in my own mind, but is God the kind of God that always tells the truth? Is God the kind of God that always wants the best for us? Is God the kind of God that leads us to eternal life? We will be confronted with conflicting voices vying for our trust every day of our lives. Daniel 8 points us to a better voice, a better word to follow than anything else we could find in this world to build our hope around. And as we read this passage, we pray that God would help us pray along with the psalmist, my heart stands in awe of your word. This is a gift. This book is a gift. As we open it individually, as we open it as a community, as we open it and encourage one another to trust in God's promises, we, we, we turn our eyes and we turn our hearts to the one who gives life, the one who is always true, the one who is always right, the one who has loved us so much that he actually came into this world, sent his son, lived the life that we have to live, went through the suffering we have to go through, even died the death that we will all one day die, so that every promise in the Bible is secure and certain into eternity. It is a gift to be able to open God's word. And and honestly, it's a gift to be able to do it with you guys week in and week out. So thank you for the privilege. And uh, let's close our time this morning in prayer. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you that they really are words of life. I pray that you would open up our hearts and our minds to, to trust all that you've told us, to, to see your word as a lifeline, to see it as a source of grace and hope and forgiveness and joy, and that we would turn to it every day, that we would learn to, to hear your words, that we would stick our, our hands in your mouth and, and learn the patterns of your character, and that you would grow us up, Jesus, to reflect your heart for this world. Make us men and women of your word and give us the, the strength, the courage, the faith to believe it and to live it out. We ask all these things in your name. Amen.